Hello and welcome to another episode of CX Conversations. This is your host Vivek bringing you CX lessons from CX leaders from around the world. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about how to use customer experience to create a new market segment. We are no strangers to new products that have enhanced our experience as a customer. From Amazon to the iPhone, when outlandish ideas and big bets are made on delivering a CX that was unheard of, we see the birth of a new market segment. Discussing how this is happening in fintech is our guest today, Apoorv Gaude. Apoorv is currently the CIO and head of products at Finzi, a leading P2P lending platform in India. He's a business architect specializing in systems thinking and is passionate about user experience design. Apoorv focuses on crafting design-led solutions for complex business problems. Before joining Finzi, Apoorv worked with ThoughtWorks in various roles for around 11 years. His co-workers love his ability to easily zoom in and zoom out on business problems and bring unique solutions on the table. Creative, jovial, lively, and a people's person are some of the adjectives one can associate with Apoorv. An obsessive movie geek as well, an avid board game connoisseur, and an impulsive traveler, Apoorv is enthusiastic about anything that involves journeys and stories, and I'm really looking forward to several storytellings today. I would add that he's also a flowcharts and post-it coloring experts, and we'll talk about that as well. I'm super delighted to be talking to him today. Apoorv, welcome to CX Conversations. Happy to host you. Thanks for the glowing introduction, Vivek. I'm happy to be speaking to you. Thanks. Let's dive in with a design question. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the design principles that you always stick to when building a product? Sure. So uh, there are three basic principles that I never let go of or we haven't let go of whenever we've built products across the years. The first one here is about defining the problem space. I don't know who the quote is attributed to, but someone said that if I had an hour to solve a problem, I would spend you know 55 minutes on the problem itself and five minutes on the solution. And that sort of gives way to an important factor a very important design thinking aspect is what is known as the double diamond approach, where you discover, okay. where you sort of go out and sort of figure out, not put any constraints on yourself and try and ideate as much as possible, understand the problem space. Then you end up defining, so the diamond closes, and then end up you know developing and delivering. Uh, so the first thing that I focus on personally is the discovery part. The idea is to not hurry to a solution. It's okay not to write that line of code. It's okay to delay writing that line of code uh, because the normal pitfall that people fall into is you might end up building a product thinking inside out for a problem that either doesn't exist or it might be a great solution but may not have a user or it just doesn't give the value that the market needs. So defining the problem space is the first thing. The second thing is about service design in itself because when people talk about design and design, though it's changing now in India, uh, but globally, people look at it as UI, which is user interface, right? How do I see it? Yeah. What are the colors? What are the shapes? How do? I... But design is a lot more than that. And that's why I like it being called customer experience. But design is about customer experience. It's the spectrum and the continuity of experience you have across touch points with a brand, with a product or a service. And that's why service design and having a service design blueprint 
which is very detailed in terms of what emotional journeys the customer goes through, a potential customer and a registered and online customer goes through when they're interacting with you and the product you build is another very important aspect. If you notice, I haven't even spoken about building the features or designing wireframes because that comes much later. True. And the, yeah. the last bit is now that you have a service design and the, to get the service design right, you need to talk to people. You need to go out and not talk, talk to only target personas, but talk to a wide persona group, uh, not pointed questions about will you use my product, but more of how do you deal with, because what people think and what they do, what they feel and what they say are different things. And a very neutral sort of a persona conversation rather than an interview uh, brings out a lot of subtle aspects of how they may react to some value proposition that you have uh, without being explicit about it. So once you have this persona pains and gains and you know what's hurting them today, what problems you can solve, what are opportunities, then you need to map these pains and gains with what is the value you're going to add. So the value proposition canvas uh, is something that we do the third. I mean, it's principle that we use to make sure that the value you're adding is actually solving a real world problem. So I would say that while there are many, many smaller aspects and many other, you know, techniques and tools, these three, defining the problem space, building a very, very powerful and strong service design at a detailed level and the value, uh, you know, proposition canvas or mapping. These three things I would say are the design principles. That's interesting. And I'm also thinking about the customer journey mapping is as a tool that most of the customer experience design world uses. It kind of sounds similar to that also. So this is, this is quite interesting. So when you started building Finzi, I'm sure there were some obvious customer challenges to tackle. For example, P2P lending on a tech platform doesn't come naturally to people. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you overcome these challenges and what were some of the non-obvious challenges that you discovered and solved along the way and maybe some things that you were able to just identify during your design phase itself? So could you just talk through those things? Sure, sure. So uh, the one thing about P2P or any P2P platform is that it being a shared economy, right? So it's there are two sets of stakeholders. In our case, because we have the assets, the money, uh, we have borrowers on one end of the spectrum and we need to give them a great experience. And there are investors on the other end of the spectrum who are investing in these loans. And we need to give them a good experience. And we need to balance both the borrower and the lender side of things. The first thing that any shared economy or any shared uh, like a P2P platform, and Uber is a great example. Uh, for example, I couldn't think of myself entering an Uber at 3 a.m. in the morning, a random car you know, at 3 a.m. in yeah. the morning to even go to the airport say 10 years ago. And today I don't hesitate. The car arrives, the app tells me your car has arrived and I expect a certain standard. I expect a certain service level. And it's not about just design or it's not about how easy is it to use the service. It's that Uber as a platform has built a trust, you know, both for the person who's ferrying me from my home to the airport, as well as the customer that's me, who's, you know, being ferried. So trust was one of the biggest sort of challenges that we had to look at because a like you said both borrowing and lending need not always were not looked at in a positive connotation i didn't want to lend money to my friends i don't if i take a home loan then it's you know hey congratulations apurva you got a home loan you're buying a new home but if i say hey i'm going for a personal loan then people will be like hey is everything okay yeah you know traditionally that's been like the approach things and still no one now. would offer money yeah exactly right <laughs> because will that money come back i don't know yeah so, <laughs> But there's always that uh, concern. 
so yeah. uh, so with trust what we realized was uh, to build the trust what we realized we had to obviously our platform had to reflect trust and the way we solved it were some subtle things for example we had we came up with during the design phase we came up with the principle that we haven't broken till date and do not want to which is we make money when our customers make money so mm-hmm. when it comes to the borrower side of the spectrum no hidden charges no you know fine print no jargon keeping things very straightforward and they only pay a processing fee to us if we put money in their account so we do not charge a registration fee on the platform nothing the rbi uh, you know we are an rbi p2p nbfc now and that of course helps with the trust but this was way back when the regulations were yet to come and same for the investor the regulations weren't there and when we were doing these persona interviews we realized that when people put money in a new asset class or a new platform the first thing they worried about is what will happen if i put my money in today and you shut shop and you run away with my money yeah and uh, while this is a technical term we built in something called an escrow mechanism we didn't have to it is a lot of heavy lifting on our part an escrow to put it in layman's term is a bank account like our savings bank account but it's an account that i can view but i cannot transact as finzi so what that means is if you you vivek put your money on finzi's platform to invest in loans we can see that your money's come but we can't take it out we need a trustee a bank appointed trustee to allow us to transact so these are you know and even on the investor side we said that we will only make a 1% fee when you get your monthly emi hitting your bank account so these were some of the you know smaller feature capabilities that helped us overcome like the trust barrier the second piece was complexity because finance a lot of us shy away from finance right when we say finance or investments we we would rather have a conversation about movies or travel yeah because it's just it's just such a complex word it's just something that you need somebody to decode and you need some sort of a navigator to help you navigate right through the financial world True. Uh, but it need not be it need not be and uh, at finzi we said that the first thing we want to do is take out complexity from the end users hand and take it on to ourselves as an example if you look at alexa or siri or even mm-hmm. google home for that matter the way i would interact with alexa is i would say alexa uh, you know dim the lights correct and alexa would dim the lights at home now the amount of complex machinery and machine learning and ai that needs to go behind alexa to be able to understand my question respond to it and act on it is immense but mm. to me it's abstracted away yes. as an end user right so yeah. as an analogy to that all the complex heavy lifting if finzi were to take it and just present an investor with a single click you come to finzi click a button and your investments are done diversified don't worry about it and for the discerning mm. investor who wants the control we of course can show you what's under the hood so building those sort of mm. capabilities a 5 minute loan application not asking for loads of information when you're applying for a loan trying and gleaning stuff out doing the heavy lifting in the under the surface and giving the customer a simple and smooth experience so these trust and complexity were two of the biggest bigger challenges that we had to you know overcome and with design and just persona interviews and talking to people we were able to handle a lot of that so that's quite insightful and when you were talking about finance being complex for people that's yeah. kind of obvious was there something that you discovered which was kind non obvious when you started talking to your customers so when i look at p2p lending 
both trust and complexity are two yeah. things that might jump out to me as, as obvious things that yeah. that would be a challenge. Was there some non-obvious things that came up and you were like, wow, this is not something that we had thought about? Correct. Um, see, that's an interesting anecdote. It's not a large thing, but for example, one of the persona interviews bring out a lot of interesting things, right? Like you said, the obvious and they validate what you know and sometimes they bring out stuff that you aren't aware of at all. So, for example, what we assumed going in, right, or the hypothesis that we had was, so the investors will want to look at each and every loan and make a decision before investing in the mm-hmm. loan. So the way it works is I come onto the platform and I see a set of loans that are assessed by Finzi and get a stamp of approval. And I can choose to put in a certain amount of money and my money goes across multiple loans, right? So diversification. So we built, uh, we designed something that was what we call today as a manual invest feature. Manual mm-hmm. invest was you, Vivek, would come in, log in, you would see, I don't know, 20 loans and you would decide that you want to invest in 15 of them and you would invest chunks of your investment in each of the loans granularly, say 1,000 rupees or uh, 10,000 or 5,000, whatever your appetite was across loans. Mm-hmm. What we realized when we saw people using it, you know, we do a lot of paper prototyping before even writing code, we did a lot of prototyping with users and we said, can you use it? What we realized was after a point when you sort of cross the trust barrier and if people know that Finzi has a certain standard of analyzing loans and analyzing risk and the kind of loans in the platform are going to be good and prime borrowers, they don't want the hassle of not everyone wants to go and do each thing manually. And we realized that people... I so agree because when you were telling me about the option of manually selecting where I want to put my money and all that, that itself was a cognitive overload for me. Exactly, exactly, right? And uh, it, I kind of, Finzi stands for finances. Easy. Okay. Yeah, that's what the brand name nice. is. Nice. So, um, and we said that how do we make it easy? Our old assumption or hypothesis goes out of the, uh, you know, uh, window for a few of our investors. Not all the investors, some investors would still want that yeah. uh, control. But a lot of them didn't. And we built something called Finzi Pro, or designed something what we call as Finzi Pro which is an algorithm, I come in and I say, hey, I want to invest 50,000. I click a button. The algorithm again does all the heavy lifting of finding loans that match me, suit me. They're not too high risk, not too moderate. So the algorithm kind of normally distributes my risk, diversifies it automatically and shows up a bouquet of loans for me. And I can say that I like it, I don't like it, or I can just click another button and confirm my investment, right? So in two minutes, my investments are done. And today, 92% of our investors use Finzi Pro as the main way in which they invest money. So that, yeah, so that was... That's quite insightful. And thanks for sharing that, Apoor. Sorry, were you going to add something? No, no. And I said that was like you said, there was, I mean, this is just an example of things that we wouldn't know. Another very simple thing that we learned, and of course, the online application solved it, is when people came in to borrow, uh, and we said, how do you borrow? And what do you find tough about borrowing today? Uh, they said, you know what happens when I want to borrow money? The bank sends somebody to my office and invariably I have to sit with this chap uh, in a room which is like, you know, the glass walls, it's a visitor's room and fill in forms and everyone passing around knows that I'm applying a loan. Yeah. And it can be, you know, embarrassing. Now, this was something that we hadn't thought of. But these are the smaller things that come out of and That's the power I want to, you know, stress again of talking to end customers about 
what they do and how they interact with, say, financial services in general, if it was a fintech product. Wonderful. That's quite insightful, Apoorva. Can you talk about the novelty of the customer experience on Finzi, which helped you guys carve a new market segment in fintech for yourself? And as a result, change the way India borrows and invests. Sure. So uh, one of the first things that we sort of uh, did when we were doing the whole workshop, which is the problem space workshop, is we did a lot of research and saw that P2P was not new, uh, but the way it was presented was that if you don't get a loan anywhere else, you can apply a loan at a P2P company, you know, a last resort, which meant that the interest rates that the borrowers were offered were very high. There's nobody yeah. giving you a loan. And similarly to the investors, it was like you can earn crazy amounts of money. It's almost like a get-rich-quick scheme. I'm not saying that that is right or wrong. I was just saying that that is a position that was there for uh, some companies in the market. And we said we want to change that. So the first thing I would say the novelty of the customer experience is the positioning itself. We offer loans at an average of 15.5%. Our loan interest rate started 10.99%, which is as good as a bank. We said, again, we'll do the heavy lifting. It's a, the platform is based on trust. We need to make sure we get the right borrowers on the platform for our investors to invest in. And I would say this positioning and telling the investors that, you know, after a certain point, the returns don't make sense. There's a tipping point. There's a risk premium that works at a good 15 to 17%. But anything above that is too risky. The, you know, the cost of defaults are too high. So that firstly, the positioning helped us carve a niche, but specifically because again, going back to having borrowers and lenders or investors, as we call them on the platform, from the borrower side, what we realized was, you know, you hear a lot about your civil score being important and it is, credit score is important, but it's uh, what we realized was people were more than just their civil score. You know, if you were looking at my civil score and giving me funds or a credit line, what it meant was that you are gauging me uh, to take an analogy in a school a school kid might get great marks but is, does that make this kid a well-rounded person and another kid who's not academically performing that well does it that is that kid not good enough maybe that person's great mm. at sports so it's we said that an individual is a lot more than just their credit score and we built in an algorithm a proprietary algorithm which considers 130 parameters but does not consider the civil score or the credit report score. We take the credit report, we look at a lot of factors in there, it's very rich data. And that has allowed us to actually provide loans to people who would have otherwise not gotten loans, but at the same time, there are folks who are, they are actually good. They, so there are two ways of engaging the borrower, the capacity of repaying and the intent to repay. And the algorithm does that. There's an instance where there was a borrower who applied, he wanted to travel and his credit score was 464. 464 is a super low score and no bank or no financial institution would touch you. Our algorithm came up with a score of 848 out of 900. Uh, we were okay. a little taken aback because uh, that was a big... It's yeah, almost yeah, double. Exactly, right? But we offered the loan. We trusted our algorithm. This person not only repaid the loan, he pre-closed the loan in three months. Finished his travel, closed the loan, the entire amount. So that sort of justified or validated our algorithm. And of course, we keep iterating the algorithm and enhancing it, but that's the borrower side of things. The investor side of things, one of the things that we realize, so the way it works is it's a regular return product. We say that on Finzi now, you just don't 
pay EMIs now on FinZ, you can start earning EMIs, which mm. means on a monthly basis, I get returns because the borrowers are paying EMIs and all that gets consolidated and transferred, credited to the lender bank account in every month, which is the principal and interest component. Now, a lot of investors came back and said that this is great. It again builds trust when you're sending back money on a regular basis to people's bank account. But they said that, you know, I don't want money back in these chunks because I don't know where to invest it again. I want to compound my returns. And we built something called Reinvest Pro. What it does is our investors can pick and choose whether they want to uh, reinvest or they want the money back in their account. But if they choose to reinvest, any money that comes... So assume that you had invested initially and your investments were granularly diversified into 20 borrowers okay, or loans. And you got an EMI, consolidated EMI from each of those borrowers. It consol- FinZ consolidates it and gives you, let's say, 10,000 rupees every month. This 10,000, if you choose to reinvest, would go again into 10 new borrowers. And not only does it now, instead of your money being in 30 borrowers, it's now 20 borrowers, it's now in 30, 50, 100. We have investors who invested in as many as 600 borrowers or loans on the platform. Interesting. And, and the money is continuously compounding and I it's almost like fire and forget because if I switch on reinvest pro the EMIs that I get automatically get allotted to loans I'm asked for a confirmation of course uh, whether if I don't like the loan Finzi will reverse the allotment but if I like it I can just confirm it and it goes through and it finishes investment and uh, just diversifies your returns allows you to compound your returns and uh, becomes a really, really powerful asset class. So I would say this is something that this kind of diversification and ability to compound returns automatically, I haven't heard of it yet. And I think it's something that our investors love. I was going to ask that. I have never heard about something like this. Have you come across any other solution, whether tech or non-tech, that does this? So uh, there are solutions that do this, but it still requires a lot of manual intervention. I need to pull out, I need to pull out money. I need to choose, but, uh, we sort of made it such, again, it, it goes back to the principles, right? The guiding principles of making things easy and hassle free. So as long as those principles are set and then you take your decisions based on that and actually reinvest pro, I would say came in a lot from, uh, talking to our current set of customers, right? Because they gave us this feedback that they wanted because otherwise by default, we kept sending money back to their accounts. And then they came back and said, hey, why can't Finzi just invest it again on my behalf? And we said, okay, sounds interesting. Let's design something around this. And therein came the investment. Nice. That's quite a story. Apoorv, since you've talked so much about the borrowers and the lenders and the investors, sorry, I'm interested in understanding more about the demography of your borrowers and the investors. Are they all millennials or do we have senior folks as well? Could you talk a little bit about both the spectrums? Sure. Uh, both the ends of the spectrums? Sure, sure. So uh, from a borrower perspective, our borrowers, I mean, by regulation, we are only allowed to have customers on board who are Indian citizens and about the age of 18. Okay. So that's a given. But uh, specifically from a borrower segment perspective, we have borrowers who we cater to salaried and self-employed borrowers. 80% of our customers are salaried. About 20% of them are self-employed. Typically have salary ranges about 25,000 or 5 lakhs annual income. In anywhere between the age group of 20, we've seen in the age group of 25 to uh, going all the way up to 45, 50. 
as well. Okay. Uh, but again, it depends, you know, on uh, the requirements. So a lot of the millennials who now use it for travel, use it to sort of uh, buy something that they've rent off a new bike. Uh, when the, the higher end age group are typically people who are looking at refinancing loans, uh, looking at home improvements, looking at, and in some cases travel too. So we have a set of customers who are doing this foreign trips and they want, instead of like pulling monies out of their FDs, they would just quickly go for a loan and they close it out quickly. On Finzi, for example, we don't have any lock-in periods, any prepayment charges. We let you come in and pay back whenever you want. So we attract this range of borrowers. Uh, investors, again, this was an hypothesis for us that, you know, only the HNIs or the UHNIs, uh, high net worth individuals, would uh, yeah. invest in something like this and as a class like this because A, it's new and B, you need to spend time and energy to understand it. RBI has a limit of 10 lakhs of investment on the B2B platform, uh, which has actually helped us go much wider. And we've not just limited ourselves to the HNIs. Is that consolidated 10 lakhs, like for me as an individual, or is it per P2B platform? It's consolidated across P2B platforms. Okay, all right. But then in the true sense of peer-to-peer, it's in a way good, you know, otherwise we would have ended up building a business where 100 UHNIs are uh, funding the loans of, you know, the 10,000 borrowers. Here we have, you know, almost like to like be truly P2P space. And mm-hmm. it's helped us uh, attract a wide range of uh, investors. Typically investors uh, who invest in this segment, uh, it's getting more and more uh, traction now as RBI guidelines have come in, regulations have come in as, for example, on our platform, uh, we've been in operations for 26 months now. For the first 23 months, we had zero non-performing assets, which means we didn't have even a single loan that had gone about 90 days of not having repaid. And today, after 26 months, we have two, only two loans, which have gone about 90 days. It's unheard of in retail financing. So that has also kind of helped, that sort of our positioning has helped us get that, those numbers. And that has also le- led to a lot of investors investing. And this, these are all walks of life, to be honest. They are no longer limited to the HNIs and the UHNIs. Anyone who's kind of handled and said that, you know, the tax amount, I have I've figured out how to save tax by investing enough mm-hmm. and I still have disposable income above it. So are these, are these again salaried individuals who might be investing in stocks and mutual funds? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And they're finding, they're finding this P2P platform as another investment vehicle? Absolutely. So the power of the P2P platform or an asset class is that firstly, it lies beautifully between, you know, your debt mutual funds, your fixed deposits, which are at 7-8% return and uh, your equity, which is higher, but higher risk, right? At 15.5, Finzi sits beautifully between, it fills a vacuum, right? Between these two. That's one. Secondly, it's a monthly income sort of an asset class, which gives me monthly returns, not easily found. Third, which people are now starting to get aware of, is any other asset class that you invest in is market-linked, one way or the other, right? Or True. they're a corporate vehicle. So yeah. either equity, I'm investing in companies, FD, I'm investing in a bank, mutual funds, I'm investing eventually to equity in companies. In the market, yes, yeah. In the market, right? All, everything is market-linked. I'm not saying those are not good asset classes. They're very powerful asset classes. But here's an asset class to add to your bouquet of asset classes, you know, as a flavor to your portfolio, which is not market link. So the market uh, downturn doesn't affect your returns here. Uh, the, and it's a retail asset class, which is the power of it. 
So in terms of its returns, in terms of uh, the fact that the markets are not linked, it becomes a good asset class to have in your portfolio. So a lot of financial advisors now also are taking this up and saying that, hey, this is a good thing. You don't have to invest. We don't say that you take money out of your other asset class and invest in this, but we say set aside some amount of money and invested interesting and from your conversation apurva i'm understanding that you're talking absolutely quite regularly with your customers i'm also interested in uh, knowing if there is a process that you follow to collect customer feedback particularly in order to measure and improve their customer experience with finzi no no absolutely uh, the whole philosophy is to build measure and learn so if you're not measuring and you just built it you don't know if it's really you know you have whether your hypothesis is being tested you need to tweak anything like i said with reinvest pro that came off of a customer you know lots of customer feedback so we have mechanisms but the one thing that we love to do is uh, irrespective of what uh, role or designation uh, anyone has we sometimes a lot of times for example i do it a lot which i just take on the support desk role when customers call in right with complaints or with hey i want to invest how do i go about investing or hey i love you guys so there are all kinds of varieties of uh, or i'm puzzled about this so i sometimes just okay. don the hat of support uh, exec and i would say that hey i'll here's the problem solution then can i speak a little bit more can i talk to you about your experience try and probe a little bit and then a lot of things come up you know it's not a very planned discussion it's more of conversation it is very enriching we also bring in a lot of our customers investors uh, especially who tend to give us a lot of feedback via email or you know through all other touch points we ask them invite them over to office we continuously do persona interviews too because personas tend to change what a target persona might have been 2 years ago in hni today could be a salaried individual right what a target persona investor persona earlier who is like in wants to be in control of their finances wants to know each and every aspect today could be a person who is a fire and forget persona i've invested money i trust finzi i'm getting my returns i'm happy so we do a lot of persona interviews and time and again we also do some low fidelity surveys you know just quick google forms type form surveys that go out and based on the response we call these customers we have conversations with them uh, but the most important aspect here vivek that i would uh, really like to highlight when it comes to design or even product development and what i truly believe it is customer experience is not the responsibility of one individual or a group of individuals in an organization especially in the new world everyone on the team needs to be passionate about customer experience in whatever shape or form they can help mold it they need to and at finzi we have what we call a customer delight team which has representatives from all teams be it credit sales collection tech product design uh, business we all come together on a weekly basis we kind of share customer feedback we look at high points low points we try and uh, you know see what what we can do about any low points that would exist across customer journeys and this sort of uh, diverse interaction always helps in building a product that's much more better rounded than say me coming up and saying i feel or i have spoken to a customer and i think this needs to be it and it also ends up giving that you know going back to service design all your touch points again become very very consistent if everyone in the company thinks that customer experience and understands why it's important that's quite interesting apurv because i am really delighted to be speaking to a lot of new age companies and uh, i'm realizing that more and more of those guys are focusing on customer yeah. experience 
and are also realizing that it is not the job of a department. It's something that the company has to stand for because the, or rather the brand itself, because the customer is going to be experiencing the brand, not a specific department, which is amazing. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned is uh, about how you collect customer feedbacks from customer service and from through the surveys that you conduct, as well as the face-to-face interviews. Are there any other ways? And if you can talk to me about the regularity or if you've built some systems around the customer's feedback itself, it would really help our listeners as well. I would say there are various, one thing we do is that various touch points across the borrower or investor journey, we specifically ask for feedback. Now, this is the most systematic feedback. What I was talking about is the more ad hoc, you know, mechanism. And uh, I'll give you an example. So for again, if you go through a service design and you go through a customer journey, there are various points in which the emotional state of your customer might be experiencing highs or lows, right? Mm. So if I'm waiting for my, my loan to be approved or a sanction, typically I would be anxious. But at the same time, when I've got my loan disbursed, it's a good time to ask for how your experience has been because you've gone through an entire cycle. And yeah. whether you're happy about your loan being dispersed in a day or whether you're unhappy about it being dispersed in three days, it's a good point. And I think the important thing here is that you need to collect feedback where in the context of that experience, not a day later, not a month later. What does that mean? Like in the context of that experience? So, for example, if I were to send, I was to receive an email, right, that, hey, Uwe, your loan is dispersed, Finzi is dispersed your loan in record time, let's say, right, of five hours from when you applied uh, for a loan. Can you just quickly write back to us if you enjoyed the experience or you have any feedback to improve it, right? Okay. At that point, I might, because I'm interacting with the service, I and everything, even if I'm going through not such a good experience, possibly, I may, uh, there's more chance that I'll write and my information that I provide might be more richer and would have the context of my experience rather than a month later me saying, no, I didn't like it. Yeah, Why did sense. you like it? I don't remember the details, but here, or I loved it. What did you like, like about us? And uh, this person, somebody answered my questions with, who's that person? You know, so we can go and give them that, uh, close the loop with them. Don't remember. So this is what, that is what I mean by when that experience point or that sort of high or low is happening is if you're around to collect and emails, when you always send emails or SMSs and notifications. So that's a good point yeah. at which uh, collecting feedback is. Makes sense. That reminds me of an experience that I had with my bank where I had to reach out to the customer service team for something that I had to get done. And about three weeks later, later, I got a call from my bank asking to give feedback on that, on that experience. And they started asking very specific question about the experience I had talking to that agent exactly i was like i'm it's going to be unfair because i literally don't remember i speak to so many people i don't remember so it's it's unfair on that person for me to give a feedback at this point in time exactly right and to me i i find that a little annoying personally because uh, you're kind <laughs> of putting your needs above the needs of the customer because my problem is solved three weeks ago right in your case and you're coming yeah. back three weeks later because possibly it's a it's an internal matrix to follow, yeah? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? It's about you need to adapt rather than follow a process, right? You need to be able to say that just because a process exists, we need to know why a process exists, right? I'm sure it was designed with all best intentions. 
But if it's happening three I weeks know. later, then you're putting the onus on the customer to remember and recall their experience. Whereas again, you need to abstract complexity away from your end consumer. I think the, what we realize is if we ask, uh, and this I learned from actually rec- having received a survey myself. From, I don't remember what brand it was. But it was very simple. It was just two questions. What made you happy about your purchase? And is there anything that else that you'd like to tell us? You know, just two things. Okay. And I felt like responding to it versus, you know, how did you hear about us on a scale of 1 to 10? And, and that sometimes... Yeah, and the questions that were being asked were also absurd. Yeah, exactly. Right. So... Uh, <laughs> You sometimes end up answering things yeah. for the sake of survey overload. Yeah. All right. So that's great. Uh, Apoorv, thanks for sharing that. Time for some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Absolutely. All right. What's the one CX objective that's top of your mind at Finzi right now? Uh, well, there are a lot of interesting features that are coming up. But uh, if you were to ask me, we are hitting scale. And uh, to keep the customer experience going at the same level that it is at today at scale is going to be an interesting challenge because 130 people giving the customers great experience versus uh, having lots and lots of more customers coming in and then the experience remains consistent i think that's top of my mind interesting which non-business book you would recommend someone and why in the context of this conversation it would definitely be alice in wonderland and through the looking glass uh, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'm not sure if you heard of this one before, this book before, but okay. uh, recommended before. Yeah, yeah. But the reason is this, right? Alice in Wonderland, one of my all-time favorite books, written by Lewis Carroll, uh, who was a mathematician, right? Prone to think logically and within constraints. And uh, if you read the book, it is full of absurd, yeah. nonsensical lyrics. It has talking cats. It has mad hatters. It has walking playing cards. There are no limits to... You know, the world that he's created. Yeah. And I think uh, when it comes to design also, this sort of a bifocal view yeah. needs to be there, right? Where you can go out there and I call it the Disneyland way of uh, creativity, which is you assume that anything is possible and cows can fly and you sort of figure out what you could do. Uh, and then you add real world constraints and problems and say, now what you know, are the things that we can do? It just sort of helps you, you know, unleash and ideate a lot better. And to me, there's nothing as creative as uh, Alice in Wonderland and as fantastical and as, I don't know, it's just a burst of creativity, every word and every line. So that's the non-business book I would recommend. <laughs> that's very interesting, Apoor, because I ask this question with all of my guests and almost, I never used to put the non-business caveat over there and almost everyone would recommend a business book. So I thought that this time I, I need to ask a non-business book. But what I loved about your recommendation is how you connected it to a business outcome. <laughs> true, true. I mean, I, uh, I'm i connecting it in this conversation. In general, if you will not put that thing also, the books are wonderful read. So It is, definitely. So which business leader do you follow and uh, what have you learned from him or her? Airbnb, Brian Chesky and Joe Jebia. Uh, two folks nice. that follow, one designers and founders. What I learned from them was very interesting. I was listening to one of their, uh, either a podcast or uh, an interview. But what they said was that they were trying to solve something, a design problem. They were saying that, hey, how would I solve it at scale? And then they realized that they can worry about scale later and first let them, let's solve this problem, right? So Yeah, I think it's the Reid Hoffman's uh, podcast, Masters of Scale, yeah. Correct, right? Where they said that, so for example, they were worried about how will we put up good pictures of our properties on the website 
because people aren't putting up good pictures and when we hit 1 million homes who's going to go click pictures of 1 million homes and then yeah. they said we're not at 1 million homes right now right uh, or some number we're yeah. at 50 so why don't we just rent out a camera go visit these homes take yeah. the pictures so what you're really doing is you're sort of uh, you know quickly low fidelity building something and uh, that's something that has stayed with me you know that's something that stayed with me the other thing i really love about the way of thinking is everybody experiences their product you know the service rather everybody stays has an airbnb experience and all their employees are expected to do it uh, the people who write code are supposed to write start writing code on day 1 and write deploy it into production so these are all very interesting uh, this is what builds the culture and i think design customer experience is all about how you build the company's culture from ground up whether you're two people are working out of a garage or you are a 5000 member team working out of a swanky office it's about how these smaller bits come in together to build a culture of design that's one of the reasons why i follow and look up to these guys that is an interesting example because i've heard that episode and and what reed hoffman says is that do things that are not scalable worry about scale when you get there exactly right because then you otherwise just put those like going back to what i was saying you put constraints that are not existent yet yeah and i remember these guys showed up at customers house with the camera and all of that and right, they were exactly. they started telling that we are the founders of airbnb <laughs> yeah so the customers started telling them a lot more about what yeah. their experience has exactly. been with airbnb exactly. so they came out with not just pictures but also a ton of feedback and you know to be honest that's what we did you know the four the four team when we started off we would some go and do the documentation the loan documentation at the customer borrower's house we would sort of go off and say yeah. that we'll do the documentation we would and again like you said a lot of interesting insights came up like you know, okay. that things that we wouldn't know they would come up and say they we love this about you and we would think oh okay we thought it was obvious and it was table stakes but people are loving this about us or this is what they're finding tough so again i like i said you know for everybody on the team to go and play nice. multiple roles is sometimes important because it helps interact with customers and everyone on our team is expected to talk to customers on a regular basis yeah. even if they're developers who don't ever need to talk to end customers uh, we don't allow that everyone on the team is expected to pick a phone and talk to at least a customer on a monthly basis awesome now i see why you have top of mind how do you do this at scale wonderful <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd be very interested in seeing that and uh, that's the thing about customer feedback rather like it is always an eye opener absolutely it's free right it's for free you're on the losing side if you're not utilizing it and if you're not making the best of it uh, because at the end of the day if you don't listen to your customers you're just going to pro- you're going to you know project your thoughts onto the product and service and you're just going to build what you think is the right thing to do and that's been one of the bigger pitfalls around innovation you know there are so many products built surprisingly built that are not needed or aren't accepted i think a lot of it is to do with not having spoken to the right folks or not talking you're being too nice apul <laughs> <laughs> a lot of products are being built that are useless is what you meant yeah so i mean uh, <laughs> i'm sure when they they were built someone somewhere thought that they would be useful i keep using this example whenever you know i talk to new folks to join i keep telling them that there are two yeah. ways of building products one is an inside out way which is to say for example let's say you and i were to start a company tomorrow right and let's say both of us would be let's take a frivolous example uh-huh. we would uh, be the best make the best lime juice in bangalore let's say right 
we were the guys who made the best lime juice and lemon juice in Bangalore. And uh, we would set it up and we would say we make the best lemon juice. So let's buy a space and let's make lemon juice and everyone will love it. Little knowing whether people even like lemon juice in the city we're selling lemon juice in, right? Or what connotations lemons have, I don't know. So it's about inside out versus outside in. So first you need to understand the problem space and the value and then map yeah. the value proposition to it. And I think that you'll learn. It. And of course, like you said, speak to customers. I think that goes without saying. Awesome. Also because it is for free. And with that, we've come to the end of this podcast. Thanks once again for talking with me on CX Conversations, Apu. I had a lot of fun and I hope you enjoyed this too. Absolutely. Always happy talking about customer experience with it and happy to talk to a kindred soul. Thank you. Thanks. And to all our listeners, this is Vivek signing off from CX Conversations. Until next time, bye.